You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Hello, and thank you for joining Wiley's Wiley Connected podcast, rolling out our 5G regulatory roadmap. Today, we're going to be talking about equipment authorization and looking ahead to some of the challenges in the Internet of Things and a 5G future. We're joined today by David Hilliard, Senior Counsel in Wiley's Telecom Media and Technology Practice. David's pretty much an expert on the wireless equipment authorization regimes, radio frequency emissions, and the FCC's regulatory oversight of SANE. Meredith Singer is also here today in Studio W with us. She's a senior associate in our TMT practice and helps clients across the telecom sector deal with compliance, regulatory, and transactional issues. And finally, we're really lucky to be joined by Jamie Suskin, who is Vice President of Policy and Regulatory Affairs at the Consumer Technology Association. There, she oversees CTA's federal regulatory efforts in front of agencies like the FCC, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Commerce. She focuses on a wide variety of communications and consumer protection issues, from cyber and device security to spectrum and wireless policy. She looks at equipment issues like accessibility, And to do all that, she draws on her expertise as the former chief of staff for FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr and chief counsel to a member of Congress. I'm Megan Brown. I'm a partner in our TMT practice focusing on technology regulation, Internet of Things, privacy and cybersecurity. Welcome and Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us for Wiley Connected's 2020 podcast series on 5G. Today, we're here to talk about equipment authorization and the various regulations that apply to connected devices. This is part of Wiley's 5G regulatory roadmap effort, wherein we've outlined a lot of the regulatory obligations, burdens, and opportunities that apply to various parts of the 5G ecosystem. So some commissioners and members of Congress are calling for increased scrutiny of devices generally and with security in particular. And to put that into context, we thought it would be useful to help the 5G ecosystem understand some of the basics about the equipment authorization regime that applies to devices that transmit radio frequency and other emissions. So this casts a wide net, everything from the Nest thermostat to the Peloton bike to office printers. Uh, The FCC has sort of the primary role here in device certification based on their statutory authorities, but other agencies are looking at IoT, including the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, FDA, and many, many others. Congress is also looking at IoT. So, Jamie, thank you very much for joining us today. Can you describe just briefly what the FCC's role is in overseeing electronic equipment in the United States? Sure. And at the outset, let me just say thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to be here today uh, to talk a little bit about what CTA has going on in the space. So, um, yeah, the Communications Act um, gives the FCC very specific authority to regulate devices for certain purposes. Um, So they regulate devices that emit what's called radio frequency energy for a variety of different things. Um, For example, they look at whether the devices are using the spectrum bands that they're permitted to use, whether they're causing interference to devices operating on nearby bands, um, whether the devices are complying with what they call 
radio frequency emission standards and absorption limits. I'm sure these are terms that you may have heard talked about even in the press lately with radio frequency emission standards, but the FCC is kind of at the forefront of those issues. Another thing that they look at that's really important for CTA and our members is that the FCC regulates some devices and services for accessibility purposes for individuals who have disabilities. So that's something that we have been working hand in hand with the FCC on over the years. I find this area really fascinating because it's complicated, it's super technical, and it's really the bedrock of how a lot of the common everyday things consumers buy are regulated by the federal government, but not everybody understands that. So Meredith Singer, um, can you talk a little bit real world with us about what sort of devices? We've talked about a few of them, but what are we talking about here? It's more than just cell phones and base stations, and how do they categorize them? Sure. So as you noted earlier, it's, you know, a wide net here. Anything that emits radio frequency energy, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can fall into this space. Um, The FCC has three general categories for devices. We won't go into them in detail here, but at a high level, there's intentional radiators, which intentionally generate and emit RF energy as part of the device's design. These generally need an equipment authorization that's known as a certification. Um, Examples include mobile phones, garage door openers, wireless and Bluetooth connections. Second category is unintentional radiators, which emit RF signals to other parts of the device or in an attendant device via a wired connection. These kinds of devices typically require an authorization known as a supplier's declaration of conformity before marketing. Uh, Examples would be TVs, radio receivers, LED light bulbs, exercise equipment, that kind of stuff. Many of these devices have been exempted from the regime, but they still may not cause harmful interference and must accept any interference that they receive. Finally, there are incidental radiators, which are not designed to intentionally use or emit RF energy, but their function causes radio frequency emissions. Common power tools or mechanical light switches are examples. These are not required to obtain an equipment authorization, but they're still subject to general operating rules, and they cannot cause harmful interference either. So, Jamie, this seems pretty complicated and not exactly like what the FCC commissioners, for example, are going to be dealing with on a daily basis. Um, So how does the FCC actually do this? So at the FCC, they have a department called the Office of Engineering and Technology, um, also known to those of us who are kind of weedy in this space as OET. Um, So OET, everyone at the FCC is actually very smart, but OET are the super smart people in the building. (laughs) Um, And so they are responsible for overseeing the various processes to get the um, equipment authorizations processed and approved. So there are um, currently two different approval procedures for equipment authorization. There actually used to be more, but they streamlined it a few years ago. The first is called um, certification, as Meredith had talked a little bit about, and the second is called a supplier's declaration of conformity. One process is a little more extensive than the other, and which one companies have to follow really depends on the type of equipment that they're trying to get authorized. And interestingly enough, a lot of devices that people look at these days, like a cell phone, a laptop, could have different uh, transmitters included inside one single body. So some companies actually have to go through both processes. So OET helps guide the folks looking for certification through that process and works them through that. 
And before we get to David, who's done this for years with all kinds of different companies getting through this process or the many processes, Jamie, does the FCC actually test all of Um, these devices? It does not. And I'm afraid to say that I only learned that since coming to CTA because the work I did at the FCC was not related to the equipment authorization process. So um, probably a lot of people think that. So, for example, the certification process actually has what's referred to as TCBs. That stands for telecommunication certification bodies. And so the company applying for the certification submits to this body um, supporting documentation and test data. And then the TCB is actually the one that would review all of that. And then testing is actually done by laboratories that are accredited. And then the FCC says that they are okay to do it. So they're accredited by different bodies. And then the FCC looks at them and says, okay, you know, you are okay to do the testing. So the FCC doesn't typically, although I'm happy to be corrected, do like the most of the testing, but they actually do have a laboratory, which is really interesting Mm -hmm. for folks to go visit it who are able to do that out in Maryland. And I've been there and seen sort of how they set up different test processes for things and um, run those. So it's actually very interesting. David, you've worked extensively with OET, and several of the folks here at Wiley were attorneys and engineers at OET. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the logistics of how you walk clients through this process and how onerous it really is. Well, usually it begins with a discussion of what the device is trying to accomplish, how it's designed, what frequencies it might use, what are the power limitations associated with the device. Um, Some of the equipment we see is pretty cutting edge. Other things are fairly routine. And our involvement depends to a great extent upon not only the nature of the device, but the experience of the company. Many companies have very uh, highly developed, competent staffs within the company that will address compliance issues. Others find this to be a very new area and need a lot more coaching. And in that respect, we're we're fortunate in that we've got some people here who have uh, been through this work for a number of years. Uh, One fellow is a former engineer at the FCC. He spent a good deal of time working in OET and then the International Bureau. And another is a recently retired chief lawyer for OET. So they've been on the other side of the table, and they understand the things that the commission will be looking for and the processes. And normally, folks come to us when they have questions involving unusual situations. Sometimes we might refer to those as the corner cases, the things that don't seem to fit neatly within the FCC rules. That means that we have to look at the history of the rules, look at the nature of the device, sometimes talk with the FCC staff about the equipment, And occasionally we end up uh, seeking written confirmation of the approach to be followed in trying to get that equipment approved. It may be a question with testing. It may be a question with operation. These are the sort of things that the FCC gets all the time. So, David, are you expecting as we enter 5G and we have more and more devices that are potentially subject to these FCC rules, are you expecting or are you already seeing a lot more filings, a lot more corner cases perhaps? What we are seeing are questions involving uh, new uses of radio. It may be some ultra-wideband situation. Um, It it might be some type of RF identification system. Uh, It could be some combination of devices. And frequently, combinations of devices present challenges 
for the approval process. Those are the sorts of things that, that, that we see in the firm most often. Uh, we also see questions arise whenever the commission changes the rules. When they adopt regulations for a new radio service or when they make some change in the rules related to approval of equipment, questions will come up. So, David, do only the, the people actually building devices and radio frequency emissions equipment have to worry about this? Is this something you can sort of park over with your engineering team and, and sort of not worry about it? No, unfortunately, that's, that's not the case. This equipment authorization program reaches out into many different aspects of product uh, development and marketing. There are rules for importing regulated devices, for example. There are rules that deal with marketing uh, when um, an unapproved product might be advertised. The general rule is that it may not be advertised. So there are some restrictions on how unapproved products are to be announced and promoted. There are rules on how those unapproved products may be operated. We spend a lot of time counseling with clients about those types of, of regulations. Can we stop there for a sec, uh, David? Just so you can, I guess, potentially buy a regulated device and then you yourself have to have some permissions to use it. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, it depends on the device. These equipment authorization rules apply to all kinds of devices, devices that operate under a, a written station license, devices that operate under a license by rule. That is, the regulations contain the license, but the operator doesn't get a specific license. A good example of that might be a common CB radio or the VHF radio that you might put in your boat or in your private aircraft. <laughs> uh, all of those um, operate under license by rule, as do certain medical devices. And then there's the so-called unlicensed device, and that's probably the most common device that we, we see and use as, as consumers because that includes things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, any number of low-power RF devices, cordless telephones, for example, garage door openers, baby monitors, just a, a whole plethora of devices operate under a part of the FCC rules called Part 15. And in Part 15, equipment authorization is, is very important because that's really the regulatory handle that the FCC has on protecting other users of the spectrum from harmful interference due to some improvident uh, choice by the maker of the Part 15 device. That's why those Part 15 devices have to be tested and approved before they can be lawfully marketed. So just to kind of give you a bottom line statement about it, uh, nearly any radio frequency device is going to be subject to a requirement. And most people involved with that radio frequency device getting to market need to have some sense of what the FCC requires. Certainly the the designers do, because they need to consider this from the start. The people that are planning the marketing need to understand it, because this can be a gating factor for them. It's the type of thing that never really leaves the table. It's always, it's always there. And you say, well, once we get it approved and we're ready to go to market, uh, we have to worry about this stuff? And the short answer is, yes, you do, in fact. Um, you do from a couple of perspectives. One is that Almost all devices go through change, and 
the devices, when they change, still have to comply. And depending on the nature of the change, you may have to go through another equipment authorization process. Well, I know you've done a lot of work with the one of the other bureaus at the FCC that has a, a dog in this fight, which is the Enforcement Bureau. Um, when you screw this kind of thing up, you might have to go talk to another uh, part of the FCC. Uh, Meredith, what happens if you screw this up or ignore the Part 15 rules or other parts of the FCC's oversight? Uh, it's not fun. <laughs> You're looking <laughs> at some penalties and enforcement action that can really add up quickly. A base forfeiture for importing or marketing unauthorized equipment is $7,000, but the FCC can impose penalties for each continuing violation up to $122,500 in a single notice of apparent liability. And most situations we see pose the possibility of multiple notices of apparent liability. So you're talking about potentially significant fines. In addition, the FCC might consider revoking an equipment authorization or seizing noncompliant equipment, not to mention the fact that once the Enforcement Bureau comes knocking, there's quite a bit of expense and distraction that comes along with um, defending that kind of case. The cases can drag on for months. Um, and companies can spend quite a bit of resources responding to detailed inquiries from FCC staff. Typically, the case would conclude with a consent decree uh, in which the target of the investigation admits liability, pays a negotiated penalty, and agrees to implement some sort of compliance plan that usually has some ongoing reporting obligations. So, Meredith, um the FCC's website has a lot of information about the equipment authorization process and about equipment authorizations and various things that the FCC oversees. But in my view, it's it's not actually all that consumer friendly. So if a mom or dad took it upon themselves to want to, say, check on the approval of a particular device, um, what does the FCC mark or what does that even mean? So let's maybe start with what it doesn't mean. Um, it doesn't mean anything about a warranty or a fitness for a particular purpose. It doesn't say anything about the quality of the product or its secure, security or privacy attributes. Um, the FCC label with an FCC ID number um, in the case of a certification mark, uh, just certifies that the electromagnetic energy emitted by the device is under FCC limits. In other words, it's not going to cause interference, which to your point is sort of the bread and butter of the FCC's jurisdiction. So this seems relevant to some overall trends that we are observing in um, policy as we head towards a 5G world. There's lots of discussion about security and privacy. Uh, we already have some state regulation mandating security for connected devices in California and Oregon. Um, and let's take a listen to what FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel has to say about what she thinks should come in the future of FCC equipment authorization. Every device that emits radio frequency at some point passes through the FCC. And if you want proof, just pull out your smartphone or take a look at the back of any computer or television. You'll see an identification number from the FCC. It's a stamp of approval. It means the device complies with FCC rules and policy objectives before it is marketed or imported into the United States. And that routine authorization process takes place behind the scenes. But the FCC has to revisit it and explore how it can be used to encourage device manufacturers to build security into new products. 
And to do this, we could build on the work of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which has a draft set of recommendations for security for the Internet of Things. It covers everything from device identification to device configuration to data protection to access to interfaces to critical software updates. In other words, it's the right place to start. And with billions of new devices in the Internet of Things coming our way fast, we need to get started now. So this may not be the right approach, uh, but policymakers are going to have to figure that out. NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has been doing a lot of work on IoT security. And Commissioner Rosenworcel thinks that that would be a good model for some future activity. But in our discussions with NIST over many years, their work is typically not designed to turn into mandates or regulation. Furthermore, I do wonder whether the FCC would have resources to do this sort of endeavor. But Jamie, I thought this would be a good jumping off point to talk more generally about what the industry is doing on security and privacy in these connected devices. I mean, CTA has some of the coolest members and stuff coming out at CES in January. So what's industry doing? Yeah, thank you so much. I would respond to your view here and say that it is CTA's view that Industry-led initiatives have really been making progress in this space. So it isn't that, you know, bad, scary things happen with our devices and we don't do anything, right? We've actually been really, really active. And in my time at CTA, I've gotten to see the breadth of what's going on here. So we, along with U.S. Telecom, actually co-host, as we say, a council, the Council to Secure the Digital Economy, or as we term it, CSDE. So this is a group of 13 companies. Some are our members, some are U.S. Telecom's members, and some like AT&T are actually both of our members. And these companies are just leaders in the space. They're really interested in cybersecurity and making sure that their products, their IoT products are secure for consumers who want to use them. We frequently have meetings. We provide feedback to the government. We um, gave comments to NIST and SCTA and U.S. Telecom on their NISTER 8259, which is their development of an IoT security baseline for devices. So, you know, we really have tried to be collaborative partners with the government and kind of give industries input into what is going on and suggest some best practices that companies can follow going forward to make sure that devices are safe and secure. So some things that we've done recently in the space under the CSDE label, we convened a group of 20 associations. It was different companies. It was basically folks with a lot of interest in this space. And we did um, a project called Convene the Conveners, or otherwise known as C2. And in September, we put out our own IoT security baseline based on uh, many, many months of discussions back and forth between all of these groups in the space. And so we did something akin to what NIST is doing. And then the purpose of what we were doing actually was to help inform NIST as they were going forward on this process to say, you know, hey, industry, can all agree on these principles. We can all agree on these practices. So hopefully this can be informative to you all in your efforts as you try to go forward and think about what proper security practices could be that we can comply with. So it was great that CTA did that with the baseline set of recommendations. And I do think NIST is really seriously considering them. I think they were referred to in the latest iteration of the 8259 document that is setting out these broad IoT baseline requirements. It also, I think the document you guys put together is really good insofar as it really does reflect risk management. And it says, you know, maybe encryption is important for one use, but maybe not another. And it it does have a lot of flexibility because of the different use cases that are present in IoT, including among your members, 
but also U.S. telecoms members and all of the other stakeholders that were there for the convening of the conveners. Yeah. And so we actually had gone through when they put out 8259 and we did an analysis of C2, the document, and then 8259. And I mean, there was actually a lot of overlap. So I think it really, I mean, it materially aligned with what they are doing. So I think we just want to be as helpful as we can be to them in this process. I think it's our goal going forward in 2020 to perhaps refresh the convene the conveners document because cybersecurity threats are always evolving. So uh, we can't stop there. So, yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of other things that are percolating in the sort of IoT security world. Underwriters Labs has some things. Uh, CTIA has an IoT certification regime. So all of that is yeah. feeding into what NIST is doing, which is hopefully to, to put all this together and provide, from my perspective at least, an alternative to maybe what the European um, economy is doing, which is a, sort of a more regulatory and certification-based model that seems a little more onerous and maybe burdensome. Yeah. And we're actually trying to make some efforts to work with some of the European bodies to at least inform them about what we are doing and what our companies are doing. So we're trying to make sure that they understand our view that industry-led efforts are positive and that they're working here in the U.S. One other thing that I think is important, it's not, it's sort of tangentially related to the equipment authorization because there's a lot more that goes into sort of device development and superintendents than just the FCC's equipment authorization model. As we've all discussed, that covers interference and it covers a few issues, but there's a lot of industry work on technical standards in, say, ADIS and some of these other organizations, these standards development groups that are many, many acronyms out there. Jamie, can you talk just a little bit? I won't drag you down into the weeds okay. on all of the standards that CTA does, but even just running through your website, I was pretty impressed and surprised at how deep the technical standards are that you guys have going on for um, connected devices. Yes. Yeah, so CTA is actually accredited by ANSI as a standards organization. And interestingly enough that you mentioned ADIS, we have several people that now work in our tech and standards office that spent several years at Addis. So you know that they all have great expertise on everything. So yes, we do have a lot of standards for a wide variety of our products. In the cybersecurity space, actually a new project that we're starting to work on is creating a new standard that would um, basically operationalize C2 and the baseline that we set out there. So I think that that's something that we'll be looking forward to working on in the new year. But yeah, standards is a huge part of what we do. We have two conferences every year that bring together our tech and standards community, and they have tons of meetings all about that. I went for the first time this year, and it was really interesting. So yeah, it's a heavy part of what we do, and we see it as a really great opportunity for industry to come together and just lead our efforts to make sure that we're advancing technology and innovation as much as we can. And yeah. Jamie, are there any particular things that when you look out over the next few years about sort of the internet of things, connected devices, are there any things that you are worried about or particularly optimistic about? So obviously we've talked a lot about cybersecurity. We're involved in um, privacy efforts that are going on. We've commented um, just recently, we commented on the California privacy regulations that were proposed out there. 
Some other things that we're focused on as 5G starts ramping up spectrum, we're very focused on spectrum. Um, CTA has been a big advocate for unlicensed spectrum in particular over the years, which you can imagine because we have so many companies that are device makers and they take advantage of the Part 15 rules that David was talking about before. So getting more spectrum out into the marketplace for commercial uses is really important to us infrastructure siting just to make sure that, you know, we can get 5G up and going is really, really important to us and our members. And we've been supportive of the FCC's efforts on this front to streamline the rules in that space. As far as the equipment context in particular, some of the things that David talked about actually are things that before my time at CTA, we have brought to the FCC's attention. We've seen some, I would say, slowdowns in the manufacturing process based on some of the FCC's rules. So I would not be surprised if we uh, rehash some of those concerns going forward. For example, some of our members have raised concerns about the idea that the devices actually have to be authorized before you can start marketing them. So that's a thing that we've raised before. We may raise again with the commission to sort of see how those rules can be streamlined to help our companies push things to market safely, but also at the same time more quickly and in a way that keeps up with where the marketplace is going for tech these days. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for our Wiley Connected podcast today on the 5G roadmap series that we're laying out. Um, Stay tuned for the next iteration of our podcast. And thanks so much, Jamie, for joining us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during our podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees.